Hello, my fellow space nerds, and welcome to another episode of The Art of Space Engineering, the podcast which explores the details behind how space systems come together and what lessons are learned along the way. I'm your host, Sarah Rogers, back after a much longer than intended hiatus. And today's episode is a very cool one indeed, because it is all about NASA's Europa Clipper mission. Now, this is a spacecraft that will perform several flybys of Jupiter's icy moon Europa, with a goal to characterize its surface and atmospheric properties and investigate what potential for life this moon may hold. Now, the mission is managed by JPL, but has contributions from many institutions, including Johns Hopkins APL, CU Boulder, Arizona State University, and the Southwest Research Institute, just to name a few. Now, to talk about this, my guest today is Laura Jones-Wilson, whose career has spanned work in both dynamics and control systems, as well as systems engineering at JPL, where she has been since 2012. Now, in addition to the Europa Clipper, Laura has served as the PI for a Mars sample capture technology effort and played an integral role in establishing a small sat dynamics testbed at JPL, which is focused on testing attitude control hardware designed for small satellites. Now, this episode will cover her experience on the Europa Clipper mission, where she served as the instrument systems engineer for the ultraviolet spectrograph. And this is an instrument which will help characterize different materials on Europa using ultraviolet light. In this episode, you'll hear this abbreviated as IE for instrument engineer and UVS for the instrument itself. Now later, Laura ultimately became the payload verification and validation lead for the Europa Clipper mission. Now the Europa Clipper has nine different instruments, which will collect data in the infrared, ultraviolet, and visible spectrums, as well as characterize the moon's magnetic field, measure the subsurface via radar, and characterize materials in the atmosphere through mass spectrometry and surface dust experiments. Now, not only are these all complex systems, which are very different from one another, but they are also developed by independent teams from different institutions. And despite this, all of these instruments have to be able to integrate with the host spacecraft and operate together seamlessly. And there's a lot of very interesting aspects of that, which we will discuss in this episode. Now, given the number of just sheer interactions involved, the instrument engineers at JPL play a very important role as a middleman in helping coordinate tasks between the nine different instrument teams and the team that is working on the broader Europa Clipper spacecraft. Now, this includes not only helping to manage the hardware and software interfaces, but organizing testing activities, overseeing requirements definition, and verification activities through the entire project lifecycle. So, not a small world at all. <laughs> Laura and I actually met a few years ago through a mutual friend of ours, Addie Cooler, who's one of my closest friends and actually co-hosted an episode of this podcast with me. Uh, this was the episode with Dr. Hugh Kiefer and his experience working on the Viking mission. If you haven't heard that one already, I definitely encourage checking it out. It was also a very fun conversation. Um, this episode actually came about after I came across a few papers that she had co-authored based on her experience on the Europa Clipper, and in particular, how the science objectives of the Clipper mission were organized and then used to derive the top level requirements for the various instruments. Now for a project like Clipper, like this mapping is incredibly important because it ultimately helps define how the instrument is designed and how the engineers are ultimately going to verify how well it will perform once it gets to Europa. Now, JPL took a new approach to requirements mapping with the Clipper through the development of a Science Traceability and Alignment Framework, or STAFF. And this helped establish a core set of definitions and links between ideas as the overarching goals of the mission were translated into requirements for the instruments. And more importantly, it served as a way to frame conversations between engineers and scientists. Because 
While people may work in similar areas, they don't always speak the same lingo. This is very true for engineering and science disciplines. Now, words have completely different meanings when applied within a very hardware-focused engineering framework and a more analytical and scientific framework. When I found these papers, I absolutely enjoyed reading them. They were not only just incredibly informative, but they piqued my interest, especially since I'd had the opportunity to work on the Ethemus instrument while I was at ASU. Uh, and this is the Europa Thermal Imaging System, which is going to study the moon's temperature and physical properties. So the Clipper has a very special place in my heart, and I found it's just very eye-opening to see sort of the other side of things that I didn't get to see while I was at ASU. Now in this episode, we're going to dive into how aspects of the spacecraft design were influenced by having a variety of different instruments on board, but a bulk of the time will be spent on discussing the science traceability framework, including what motivated creating this, how it was developed over time through inputs from both engineers and scientists alike, and how it helped become a very useful tool for interfacing with many different organizations. So I had so much fun with this conversation, and whether you're a systems engineer yourself or you're interested in other aspects of spacecraft development, I think you will get a lot out of it either way. And with that said, without further ado, please enjoy this very wide-ranging conversation with Laura Jones-Wilson. all of this yesterday so hopefully it, i don't know nothing weird happened <laughs> awesome yeah no worries um but yeah the how, how i got into the podcast so it was like i've been doing systems engineering for like like eight years now i think it all kind of started in 2015 when we submitted a, a proposal to nasa to build a cubesat at, at arizona state um, and so through that project, I sort of became like the lead systems engineer and then kind of realized that that was what I liked doing. Um, and then in 2020, actually, it was when I, I got really into podcasts and just started listening to a bunch of them, really enjoyed the format, uh, as like a way to sort of like learn about other stuff, um. And there's one in particular I like, which is called Ologies by Allie Ward. And so mm, she... Oh, oh, you listen to Ologies. I've heard of it. I haven't listened oh. to myself. Yeah. It's oh, it's it's such a fun podcast. Like Allie Ward is like she's the journalist that I I totally wish I could be. Um, she just makes everything so fun, and she she interviews like all these cool people on just different things that they study. And so I was like listening to that and, and thinking. Like, wow, you know, she gets to have like all these cool conversations with people who are super passionate about what they do. And, you know, she's helping people learn and the conversations are just fun. And um, I was looking for podcasts on like space engineering and wasn't really finding things that were doing kind of like deep dives into how people do their jobs. Um, mm. It was like some were sort of like on broader missions, but it kind of scratched the surface of it was sort of the general things that are always in press releases and so I was kind of like listening to these podcasts like hmm I could do something on space like maybe I should do something on space like I'll, I'll just try it out and um 
as sort of a way of, like you said, like staying with a community of practice and helping people, um, but also as kind of like a career, like exploration type thing. Um, you know, like how do I make myself better to handle things that come mm. up in, in my career? So it was kind of, it was kind of a mix of like a cu couple of those things. Um, awesome. And then, I mean, now that I, I so um, actually like really appreciated that uh, you said yes to this because I, I haven't done this in a, a little while actually because um, I let's see I've I moved I got away from ASU not <laughs> that's said <laughs> in a poor way like not that ASU was like bad but I, I, just, <laughs> I, I need to leave this hot state yeah <laughs> um no, I just kind of like reached a point where I just really needed, like I grew up in Arizona, so I mm -hmm. just needed to like get away and mm, yeah. um, see, you know, see a different part of the U.S., like be in a different um, it, different part of the industry uh, mm -hmm. and just took a, a while to like get kind of set up on the East Coast, um, and, like figure out a life here and all that stuff. So it's yeah, for sure. been a while since I've done this. Um, so oh, okay. Apologizing in advance if I'm like super rusty. <laughs> yeah, no worries. But but yeah, now now that I'm like, I don't know, I guess more integrated into the industry, it's I'm also finding that it's kind of a way of helping me stay a bit more connected with like mm. the research that's going on. I mean, conferences are certainly one thing, but it's I don't know. It also just scratches the surface of a lot of things too. Mm -hmm. Um not that I've been to a whole lot of conferences, but <laughs> sure. um, so yeah. Oh. No, that's great. I think this is really a cool topic. And, um, you know, you learn a lot as systems engineers by talking to people. And I think this is a, a great format for this particular discipline in particular. Yeah, absolutely. I had the, actually the opposite journey that you did. I started out on the East Coast, uh, at least in you know, recent memory, uh, where I went to undergrad at Virginia Tech and then went and did my grad school at Cornell. So I was in the Northeast mm -hmm. and my dad was military. So I've lived all over, but I never really lived in, in the West Coast and did an internship out here during my undergrad and fell in love and was like, oh man, I need to find a way to get go back. Um, and so I, uh, you know, in, uh, ended up at GPL and uh, love it. So I've been here ever since uh, 2012. So it's been over 10 years now. And uh you know, the, the normal response when someone asks an RV brat, like, where are you from? You say all over. Um, mm -hmm. But now I officially can say California. <laughs> I've lived here longer than anywhere else. <laughs> yeah. So I shed all of my heavy winter coats coming out this way, as I'm sure you had to acquire some heading your way. Oh, yeah. No, I, I moved out here and I had like two jackets. <laughs> they were like hoodies. Uh, the first place I went was REI. <laughs> I was yeah. just like, please just teach me about layering because I don't know <laughs> anything. Yeah, I remember all of our uh, grad students got together, all of us from like warmer states, and we're like, okay, teach us how we survive. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. If I recall correctly, is your degree in control systems? Yeah, so my, my PhD was in... Um, dynamics controls of space systems. And so um, I have that background and I joined GPL as a guidance control engineer, uh, but found my way into systems engineering pretty quickly. And 
it started out as guidance control systems engineering, where we do um, all of the same things systems engineers do, but with a focus on the, the guidance control system for the spacecraft. Uh, but I was very interested in kind of how uh, the guidance control really impacted science in a lot of ways. If you have an instrument, you generally want to point it somewhere, someone, um, or you care a lot about how stable it is on the spacecraft and the reaction wheels are shaking you all around. And, and so there was a lot of science connections there. So I was always very interested in that. And in parallel, when I first got to JPL, I, I had my eye on the Europa Clipper project. So I thought it was one of the coolest things on lab. Um, it's a mission that's going to go to an icy moon of Jupiter and explore uh, the habitability of that planet. And it just seems like such a fascinating place to, to explore. So those two interests kind of connected in 2015 when I got an opportunity to work in the payload office. Um, so I got invited to become what we call an instrument engineer, who's uh, essentially our liaison at JPL with the instrument team. Um, so payload office works at level three, and the instrument teams are at level four on Clipper. And so I was the specific L3 point of contact for the uh, ultraviolet instrument, UVS, uh, starting in 2015, right as they announced the instrument selection. So uh, because that was such a cool opportunity, kind of put my guidance control stuff on the shelf for a little while and came over to the payload office. Um, there were some connections, you know, UVS needed the tightest pointing on the, on the spacecraft. Mm -hmm. And so there were some interest in understanding that from an accommodation perspective, but it really opened my eyes up to the whole systems engineering on the science and instrument side. And so that's how I kind of got into Clipper and I stayed in the payload office, uh, the project systems office for the entire eight years I was on the project. So um, recently come back to guidance and control stuff and now I'm working on uh, actually sample recovery helicopter for the more sample return mission. Uh, so okay. I did a big loop there, but uh, <laughs> systems engineering is still kind of the common denominator in all those, on all those roles. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really cool that you kind of got to see it like from, you know, basic concept, basically the like concept through sort of carrying out the, um, you know, instrument INT final integration, like just the whole project life cycle, especially for like a big program like that, where there's lots of instruments and, you know, lots of impacts to the spacecraft design. I, you know, it, yes. it's certainly like very much reflected in uh, the the papers that I I read um, <laughs> from you on on just like, you know, it, particularly the one of the pa papers that I'm hoping to go into in in this conversation, which is the one on the um, on T staff um, or the the project science traceability and alignment framework um, and, and just like communicating with scientists and like developing sort of a requirements framework for that. So um, I, that's, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a project is like ambitious as Europa Clipper. One of the things you learn very quickly is that it requires just a lot of really talented people. Uh, the team that they assembled was just incredible. And it was a, a privilege to be able to work with all of these fantastic instrument providers. Um, it was also very, very cool to work with all these really talented people on the JPL side who had experience from Cassini, also people who were new and had just like really cool ideas on how to how to make this work. Um, it's an extremely challenging environment. You know, Clipper, I don't know if you're familiar with the mission much, but essentially what Clipper is trying to do is it's trying to understand the habitability of Europa. And um, for a long, like it, scientists have thought that Europa is one of the best possible places in the solar system that might harbor life right now, you know, uh, as opposed to maybe in the deep past. And 
it's because it has kind of the main ingredients we think you need for life, right? It's got a full ice shell um, that we think has strong evidence for a, a, a global ocean underneath it. So there's liquid water and it's not actually kept liquid by the sun or warmth, it's kept liquid by the tidal forces acting on it from Jupiter uh, is the current theory. And so, um, so it's got liquid water, it's got the right chemistry, it's got stability, it's been like that for millions of years. Um, it has energy sources. And so there, there's a lot of things about it that make it really interesting. And um, in order to really get at the habitability, though, you need a lot of different kinds of instruments. It's not like a very targeted mission. It's really explore this really incredible world and understand, could it be habitable? As a result of that, you need a ton of instruments. Um, and uh, they all need to survive in this really uh, terrible radiation environment, right? So Europa is in the radiation belt around Jupiter. And if you were to go there and just like orbit Europa, you would not last very long. I mean, it just, you would bake and that would be the end. And if you're gonna send like these incredible suite of these fantastic instruments, you'd hate to just have them like, you know, spend years to get to Jupiter and then survive on the order of days, right? Um, so the thing that was really enabling for Clipper was the idea of a flyby mission, where essentially instead of orbiting Europa and trying to take data all at once and just send it out before you die, you orbit Jupiter <laughs> on um, these kind of two-week timescales where you can kind of swing by, take the radiation dose in like small increments, get really close to the moon on a flyby, and then get out of the radiation belt with your wounds and <laughs> send back data. And then if you need to, do any kind of anomaly management. Um, and then do that dozens of times and get the data in increments to let you kind of learn. And that makes the mission extend on the order of like three years instead of days but you have the chance to process it, understand it, and deal with problems um, without putting kind of all your eggs in the, the multiple day basket, right? So, so that was really enabling. And so when that idea came through, um, they selected Clipper and uh, that's kind of what we were starting with. But if you have that concept, the thing about Clipper is that all the instruments then want to be on at the same time when they're really close to the commute, right? You've got what, 40 plus of these flybys and that's it. This isn't like you're, you know, kind of immersed in a world where everywhere you look is is uh, all the stuff you want to see. It's really like there's a kind of targeted time period on the order of hours, very close to the moon, where you're gonna get the highest density of science. And so Clipper's complexity, I mean, besides being, you know, very ambitious and turning on this really um, dense radiation environment, is that all of these instruments need to not interfere with each other. And they need to be able to take data and work together as a payload, even though they're coming from all across the country with different people, with different systems engineering practices, um, sometimes with competing needs. You know, one instrument wants to gimbal the, the camera around and look at different spots. Another instrument wants very stable images without something else in the spacecraft moving. And so you try to figure out how to balance these competing needs so that no one's getting dedicated flybys. The real goal would be to have everyone take data for all the flybys. And that's not easy to do. <laughs> I, I appreciate like hearing that viewpoints. My experience was working on the Ethiumus instrument, which was developed by ASU. Um, so that was like an infrared uh, imaging system. And I came in at like the tail end when all the requirements and design had been worked out. So like I didn't see you know, all the back and forth that was kind of going on between the, you know, the spacecraft deck and the instrument and how instruments might interfere with each other, either through vibrations or 
like through through EMI. Uh, so it was like everything was like crystal clear. Okay, we have a plan. <laughs> um, so and and when you kind of come in at the tail end, you don't, I don't know, you don't always like fully under like grasp like how large of an effort it was to just coordinate all of that. Mm -hmm. um, so in in terms of like the instruments sort of interfering you know, with each other or having different needs, um, was that settled from how they were positioned on the spacecraft and, you know, the fact that there was like a payload deck that accommodated most of them, the spacecraft was able to sort of point all of them at once in one direction, that kind of thing? Yeah, so I would say that, um, you know, there are nine science uh, instruments on the, on the um, spacecraft and some of them are remote sensing and some of them are actually in situ where they scoop up part of the exosphere as we fly through. And so some instruments actually wanted to be pointed Nader and some wanted to be pointed RAM. Um, and some of them, like our plasma instrument, wanted to be kind of in all the directions so they could get a full sense of the plasma field. And so they had little cups that needed to kind of go and cover the full sphere. Um, and so the mechanical accommodation was, yeah, as you said, there's a, a deck that uh, accommodated the remote sensing instruments and let them point Nader. Uh, and then they're kind of along the side of our vault. There's uh, a lot of the instruments that need to kind of do this, the scooping to do the, the sampling. Um, the hardest accommodation problem really that uh, I was involved in was trying to accommodate the radar instrument actually, because we had um, large solar rays and the, the solar rays when extended out on Clipper uh, are tip to tip longer than a basketball court. I mean, this is an enormous 3000 kilogram spacecraft. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, those, the solar rays, uh, the whole point is to obviously generate electromagnetic energy for the, the spacecraft. But um, if you're a really sensitive radar, what, what the reason our ice penetrating radar is trying to do is it's trying to send a pulse and listen based on just like what echoes come back and see if it can detect uh, where the ice ocean interface is. We also get something uh, they call a radar gram that looks at all the different layers of the ice. You can actually see like different temperatures. You can see if there's lakes inside the ice, uh, they're kind of like melt spots. Uh, they do this in Antarctica. And it's uh, really, it gives you a lot of insight into kind of the structure and the ice ocean interface and things like that. But when you're trying to potentially hear an echo of a, a small pulse from, you know, say, say that you're like 25 kilometers above the surface, you send the pulse out, and then you're listening for something that comes back from 30 kilometers depth. You can imagine how like sensitive the instrument has to be to like hear that and react to it in a way that you can actually detect it out of the noise. And so putting that right next to a giant solar array that's generating a bunch of electromagnetic energy uh, was a big challenge. Um, in fact, the accommodation team was really struggling on how to make sure that those two large things didn't end up in fields of views of cameras. And so the initial accommodation and, and what they're actually going to fly is putting the radar uh, antennas on the solar array. And Airbus, who's providing the solar array, uh, <laughs> one of their electrical engineers walked into a meeting where we said this is the accommodation. <laughs> He's like, in Europe, we don't we don't put radars in solar arrays. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we usually do it. We are. Like, what do you want from me? <laughs> yeah, it's not not the usual solution, but there were a lot of constraints, and I mean, there was a whole team that spent like a very large amount of time, and so many creative minds came up with all the possible ways you could do this, and this really was the way that it had to happen. 
And so there was just a lot of a lot of back and forth on that and the kind of way that that ended up. Um, the reason it's a challenge is because you want essentially your antennas to be perpendicular to the solar rays and there are two frequencies on the radar. And so you want both of those frequencies to be perpendicular to each other. So in theory, there are enough degrees of freedom, but in reality, like how to accommodate it and get it pointed data and stuff, you only get really two of those. And so what they ended up doing is making the the two different frequencies kind of in, in the same plane so that they could deal with their own interference and kind of work within the team to figure out how to manage that rather than trying to work the interferences with the solar array. And so they're perpendicular to the solar array and that's <laughs> that made everyone happy. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was a very big challenge and like, you know, was a lot of time and energy was spent on that, but, uh, but a lot of really creative people and the, and the recent team is just brilliant. So we were able to all kind of come together with our partners at Airbus and make that happen. But yeah, that was the one that kind of spent the most time on just because of how sensitive that instrument was and how much of a challenge having that solar array on there really is for, for that particular instrument. Maybe just since we're on the topic of interfaces at the moment, were there other types of requests, whether it be with on the operational side um, or maybe just the interface side that were sort of difficult to accommodate? Mm. Yeah, so one of the other things that made this kind of multiple flyby mission is what they call it work is the idea that all of the instruments have this like the conops were going to be the same for every flyby they're really trying to make it extremely consistent they're going to do the same thing for every flyby so that we didn't have to you know make bespoke flybys for every instrument and things like that and so this was kind of a, a simplifying principle that was used early on to try to like manage the complexity in the conops but the truth is that there are some instruments like UVS, like I mentioned, I first started working with um, that want to do observations that really do vary by flyby. And so, for example, um, UVS does this really cool observation called a stellar occultation, where they basically look at a star with a known UV spectrum, and then they watch that star as it goes behind the moon. And so you actually see what attenuation happens as it goes through the exosphere of the of the moon okay. and you can actually get some information on what is being absorbed you know in the spectra and that tells you something about the exosphere and kind of what's around the moon um, and so when you can do these are really dictated by what bright UV stars are around and when you're going to have the right geometry to do that right and so there was a lot of um, I guess concern early on that this kind of Everyone looks at, you know, this altitude, we're going to look down Nader and then we're going to just do the flyby and then we're going to do it this way. It was very like kind of um, intended to be very simple, but these kind of opportunistic almost, you know, uh, observations that kind of came up and varied every time you did a tour uh, were, you know, early on where people were worried that that was just going to add a ton of complexity and that they were very concerned that these kind of observations are going to be very difficult to accommodate. But that actually... Um, the deeper you go into the observations, the more you realize that everyone is a little different. It's easy to, at, you know, at the high level early in the you know, phase B, say, okay, we're just going to always do it this way. And this block on this plot looks the same every time. But the more you dig in, the more you realize that sometimes you need to do different kind of settings on the instrument, or sometimes, you know, you need to, you need to do a scan or something like there's always something right and so you're you're gonna have to get into that complexity at some point is kind of what we realized and while UVS was the one kind of 
plowing the way forward saying, hey guys, this is a really important part of our science. We need to figure out how to make, you know, this simple CONOP still work well with these opportunities that are not consistent with just because of how the solar system's geometry is set up. Um, but it kind of paved the way to us to really understand, okay, how do we balance the need for doing something that all the instruments can be happy with while also dealing with the fact that, you know, some of these observations aren't the same every time. So what ended up happening as part of the MSAP and stuff that we'll get to is that our awesome mission design team basically developed a tool that allowed them to like pull in a bunch of information on what stars were available and actually do the modeling to figure out when those opportunities existed. And we were able to take the information from the instrument teams, not just UVS, but all of them, and codify under what conditions a particular observation could be made. Some of them were obvious, like, okay, a nighttime observation needs a certain angle with respect to the sun on the surface to like be right. But you actually have to quantify that. You know, you can't just say nighttime. You kind of have an intuitive sense, right. but it's something <laughs> specific, right? Or, um, you know, you needed a specific kind of uh, angle with respect to Jupiter because there were also like Jupiter occultations and things like that. And so you started realizing that all these, we call them conditions in our framework, but all these conditions needed to be formalized for every observation anyway. And then you just... Um, the, the mission design team, uh, Ben Bradley and those, I think they even wrote some papers on this, which also cool to read, um, actually went and just like took all of those uh, conditions that we helped codify as requirements and pulled them into a simulation tool that allowed them to identify for any given tour what windows of time met those conditions, certain altitudes, certain speeds, certain lighting conditions, et cetera. Oh, wow. And that helped them identify all the windows of opportunities for all the observations that were, you know, there, there are a handful of ones that are like harder, you know, I, uh, the visible image, uh, imager ice, uh, because they controlled their own gimbal, they could be pointing at slightly different places, right, at a given time. So those were mostly done on the instrument side, but almost all the other ones that were you know codifiable in a way that was deterministic by just the geometry of the solar system we could figure out all the all the planes all the opportunities where you could take those observations in a meaningful way and that helps the mission designers when they put together the tour design before they came to the scientists they could actually make sure that they knew what the kind of weak spots of a particular tour were and that it met some of the really key criteria ahead of time so and it all started because we realized we needed to be able to start identifying when these opportunities existed for some instruments. And a lot of them kind of benefited from us being able to build the tools to do it for everyone. Um, but one of the key enablers of that, you know, when you have nine instruments, there are hundreds of science requirements that were all written in different forms by different teams. Mm -hmm. um, so the key thing to being able to do that was being able to put them all in a format that was kind of consistent and kind of working through, you know, ambiguities that maybe weren't obvious in the original text of the requirement. And so this science traceability and alignment framework that we put together, um, so Sarah Suska and I were the ones who primarily put this uh, idea together. She was another instrument engineer in the payload office at the time. And so she was working with some instruments and I was working with other ones. And by kind of combining our experience with those instruments and realizing that we needed a framework to describe this, we were able to kind of do that organization to say, hey, these are common types of condition requirements and uh, codify them and work with the teams to make sure that they were written correctly and that we weren't missing any. And that really improved the, the ability for the mission design team to not have to wade through 300 you know, separate child statements. They're essentially given a table of contents for every instrument with like sun incidence angle. And they could just like look down to the 
column in the matrix and say, oh, there's five instruments that need some incidence angles, and this is the, the number that they hear they need, and I can go to this requirement number to go find exactly, you know, the the values I need. And so being able to organize that and understand that, you know, let's say 20 different types of conditions we cared about on this mission, or maybe sun incidence angle and Jupiter incidence angle and all these other things, you know, they were able to quickly codify what they needed to put in their simulations to, to make a meaningful tour. And so it's really a matter of us organizing the information, but then um, they took that and ran with it and made all the simulation tools that did a lot of really cool stuff for the, the later development of the project. It made it much easier and faster to develop better tours before we brought it back to the scientists for them to adjudicate it further. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, especially like, I don't know, just thinking about sort of the operations uh, end of things. And I, I feel like, I don't know, I, I, I know sometimes a lot of that kind of gets developed later, but it sounds like you guys just had those tools sort of from the beginning to, to you know, help promote that as well. So I wanted to do a brief aside here before we continue with the rest of the episode. The second half of this interview discusses the development of the project and measurement science traceability and alignment frameworks. These are the PSTAF and MSTAF matrices that you'll hear about. And since the conversation requires some familiarity with this framework, I wanted to take a minute to describe what it contains using some examples from the papers that I read. So as a project is defined, it's structured around a hierarchy of elements. So at the top, you have your definition of mission objectives. This then defines the science campaigns you pursue, which then informs what kinds of data you need to collect and what type of observations are required. Now from that, you can determine how the instruments support the approach that you've outlined. So the PSTAF and MSTAF matrices are essentially used to organize these elements so we can create governing requirements. Now the project framework, or PSTAF, focuses on the overall science goals, while the measurement framework, or MSTAF, helps define how the required measurements are structured. Now once these matrices are defined, you have a detailed mapping of each science objective to the relevant investigations, data sets, and instruments being used, as well as what requirements impact these objectives. Now that you have all of this information in front of you, it's much easier to examine how objectives are impacted when performance is compromised or anomalies occur. So in the whole hierarchy of mission elements, the PSTAF domain sits right under the mission objectives and specifies the science campaigns and the science data sets. The science campaigns are directly linked to the mission objectives, and these are used to group together related science investigations and hypotheses. Campaigns specify the science scale and the science target and investigations being examined. To define this a little bit further, the science scale distinguishes how science investigations are applied over different geographical distances. For example, are you trying to collect data on a global scale? Or are you trying to study landforms and features that are within a particular region? Or are you a lander and therefore restricted to what is local and therefore right in front of you? And the science target and investigation fields is then used to identify the physical objects which will be studied within the type of science being performed. For example, studying surface geology is different than studying atmospheric composition. The second half of the PSTAF domain is defined by the science datasets. And these are the observations or measurements that are collected by a single instrument which support the science campaign. So for example, one might have a science dataset called the Atmospheric Composition Ultraviolet Dataset. And this makes it clear exactly what's being studied, what scale it applies to, and it helps distinguish similar measurements that might be collected by multiple instruments. And the MSTAF domain, on the other hand, is 
a very similar in framework, but it goes into finer detail on how measurements are actually collected. Now this uses the science data sets and the science observations, but also define measurement techniques that can be used and under what conditions these measurements should be collected. Now that is a very brief summary of the MSTAP and PSTAP domains, but I hope that it gives you a sense of what this framework looks like. And as we move through the episode, we'll talk a lot more about how this became a helpful tool for the Europa Clipper mission. However, since this is really just grazing the surface of what is described in the paper, I definitely encourage you to read through the resources that are linked in the show notes to get a more thorough picture of what this looks like and how it should actually be created. Now that we have that picture, let's get back to the conversation. I mean, the mission design team has some really amazing heritage tools that they use and um, and the ops tools, you know, get built hand in glove with this. Um, but the, the kind of new element for Clipper was a tool that had been Bradley developed called Veritas, which basically ingested the PSTAF and MSTAF matrices that we developed that were in the papers. And like I said, those matrices are essentially ways, like think of them like an organized uh <laughs> like Dewey Decimal System or something for, for requirements. And so instead of having like, you know, 300 individual shell statements, you now knew exactly which ones were what kind, which categories. So you could pick out for any given instrument, all the ones that cared about a particular, you know, it's again, solar incidence angle or something like that, or altitude above the surface. Um, and by codifying it that way, Ben was able to basically ingest those matrices right out of Excel. So he just like read them in the code. And then he wrote, each of the, um, the assessments to determine where on the timeline those opportunities existed. Um, and then further, the, the MSTAFs at least were the, um, set up to tell us, okay, for a given observation, say that you're doing a nighttime Euthemus observation um, as a surface stair, then uh, what does it mean to be successful? What does it mean that I've gotten all the stairs I need? And so uh, we had different categories. Um, so Sarah and I had the uh, coverage in space, like spatial coverage. So how much of the surface or how many images do you need to be sufficient? Uh, we also had temporal coverage, which is, um, do you have to do it over a specific period of time? So you guess, for example, as doing plume searches um, of Europa, and there are different hypotheses about what might generate a plume. And so you need to search over certain time periods to understand if they're happening, um, to basically distinguish between those hypotheses. So if they, you know, happen when you're at a specific point relative to the tidal position of, you know, Jupiter, that's one, you know, mechanism, for example, and you have to be able to, like, get that coverage to know it is or is not happening there. So temporal coverage might be another one if you're looking for change over time. Um, another thing that we looked at was overlapping of your own observations. So the radar instrument needs to have what they call crossovers. And what happens is you get a radar track on the surface when you get another radar track over the same surface in a different direction, you get this kind of X. <laughs> Those crossover points help lock in the global grid that they use to kind of assess where all of the different um, observations are made. So they needed certain overlap. And Ethemus, you know, needed certain uh, day-night overlap. They needed images during the day and the same place at night uh, for a certain percentage of the surface to be able to determine things like thermal inertia. And so, um, so those overlaps are another key piece of it. And then we had this other category called uh, like special case. It was a little bit of a, a miscellaneous basket, but the truth is that like sometimes the science is like locked in by the counterpoint. So if you do a bunch of equatorial observations and you need at least 
a small number of polar observations to again understand hypotheses about the geology of this of, of the moon or something like that. Um, sometimes you just need a handful of like contrasting observations, and so we have these kind of special case ones where I really need to look at Terra and Thrace, or I really need to have at least one polar observation above this elevation or this uh, latitude to be able to like know the science, right? So we basically figured out that those categories existed and that most instruments had some version of all of those. And we basically systematically went through the requirements and said, okay, for every observation, what conditions under which does it need to be collected to be useful? And then what are those four categories of like coverages and stuff like that? And then what are the measurement qualities? What's the signal to noise ratio? What's the spectral range? What's the, you know, whatever else. So there's a bunch of qualities that mostly flow to the instrument, right? About how you build the instrument. Uh, so once you have that and you do it for every observation for every instrument and you have a systematic way of understanding it, now instead of me like, you know, as a poor IE who doesn't know anything about these science instruments that are, you know, incredibly complex, um, I can now ask intelligent questions and say, okay, you gave me this set of, of requirements. Why didn't you constrain the temporal coverage for this type of observation? Like, I didn't see that. Is there a good reason? And you can ask not only you need the requirement, but you could also have like a good rationale for why you didn't need that requirement. You knew it wasn't a mission because you had a conversation saying, oh, those observations don't have a hypothesis over time. So we don't need those. So you could actually write not applicable. And you understood that some observations just didn't apply to certain categories. But you learned more that way by asking intelligent questions about why is this different from this rather than just, is it right? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. so, so as a result of that process, uh, that's how Sarah and I got involved in this. We started with those IMSAF matrices, which we basically used to balance the requirements across all the instruments. Because of course, you know, some instruments, um, let me back up. One of the coolest things about working in the Clipper payload is that no matter what topic it was, assistance engineering, I basically got to see a statistical set, right? You got like almost 10, different ways to do the same thing because everyone had to have an interfaces everyone had to have requirements everyone had to have you know basically all the pieces to make an instrument work and every institution did it a little differently and so one of the things that i would say i learned from being this is a lot of humility because there's like a ton of really really good institutions and a lot of experience based across the whole country and people know their stuff and all of those ways work they're all different right. but you know some people get very dogmatic about I'll give you an example. You know, L3s cannot be parents of L5s. Like, that's just not right, right? But yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> they did that and it worked for them and it made sense, right? And it was just like, oh, so so most of the dogma, like there's a handful of things that I still think should be like, you know, we, we as systems engineers should fight this. But in general, I saw that there were so many possible right ways of doing it and not just right ways, but good ways of doing it that you kind of appreciate the dogma doesn't have a lot of like weight, you know, like getting kind of on your high horse about your preferred way of doing it doesn't mean it's the only way. So one of the things that we discovered though, is that when you're trying to stitch those together into a coherent whole, you get this uh, need to figure out how to let institutions do what they do really well and what they're comfortable with and what they understand. while being able to fit it into a framework that the whole project can benefit from, right? Because we're all trying to work together. Um, our chief scientist, Bob Papalardo, in our first project science group meeting, basically gave this analogy. His, his philosophy was that he did not want Clipper to be 
a drawer full of uh, silverware, he wanted a Swiss Army knife, right? He wanted us all to be integrated and connected and have this kind of common goal. And that really set the stage for the, the science traceability and alignment framework because Sarah and I were like, this is the body of the Swiss Army knife. This helps us understand how these things connect to each other and make sure that there's a common framework for understanding it. Uh, you know, all the, and it's a little corny, I'm, I'm a musician, but uh, the reason we came up with the acronym staff was because uh, all the instruments use a staff, a musical staff, right? So all the instruments are playing together and doing their own thing, but we all have like some common you know, script to understand. And so the whole vision for this was, you know, instruments can do what they what they do best, but there is a way to understand and interpret it and kind of put it in place and give everyone a, a, an understanding of the whole. So that's one of the cool things about the staff work in particular was that, you know, we didn't want to interfere with stuff, but we wanted to glean as much as we could from it. And really, as systems engineers, you know, the, the form followed the function. It wasn't that you know, requirements must be this way. You know, we get very interested in uh, one of the other elements of staff, for example, is that we allow for, uh, in P staff at least, we allow for or relationships because another feature of having all these instruments is not just that they interfere with each other, but they also work together in really important ways. Right. And there are sometimes an instrument that has capabilities that can answer science questions in our L1s that maybe wasn't envisioned when NASA picked the suite of instruments they did, but they need to know that there's some robustness there. And we as a project need to be able to understand you know, if we lose this instrument, is all the science gone or not? You know, if it got knocked out by radiation, for example, um, we need to kind of understand kind of that that hole. And so PSTAF, which is the project domain level, MSAF are the ones that I mentioned before, you put all the measurement requirements in the grid, you understand mm -hmm. how they connect together. But PSTAF, what it does um, is it basically says, okay, every instrument has observations. Those are all the columns in a PSAF matrix. So every instrument's got an, an observation. For every observation, you've got a column. And then we took the science uh, L1s and broke them down into kind of meaningful science groupings by talking to the scientists. So we talked to Bob, we talked to all the other uh, scientists on the team. And uh, they were very patient with the systems engineers coming in saying, we want to, we want to write it all down, tell us everything, and, and trying to explain these nuances to us. And so what we then did is we ended up mapping for every, uh, what we call approach. So there, for example, there might be multiple ways of determining how thick the ice shell is on Europa. You might do it by direct measurement with the radar. If it's thin enough, you'll see the return bounce off the ice shell. Or you might do it by doing uh, the tidal deflections as things moving around. You might actually see that with your magnetometer or small variations in how it's moving around. And I know my scientist friends are probably all cringing at my description of this, but in my <laughs> systems engineering brain, uh, you know, the, so there are little different ways to do it. And so we wrote those down as different approaches. And Clipper can do to some level or another, you know, some are better than others with the instrument suite we have, but you can do both of those. And so we actually have maybe different ways of getting at it, depending on what Europa throws at us. So for every one of those possible approaches, for every one of those possible ways of dealing with it, we wrote down which observations were key to answering it that way. And it's not the only way you can do it potentially. So we came up with a system to codify how, how the instruments in an and and or branched tree basically might work together or in parallel to each other to, to give us the science that, the, that NASA gave us in the L1s. And so this kind of connection between the L1s that NASA had given us and this payload suite that they had given us and understanding kind of the nuances and complexities of where all the science is and not just in requirement space, we actually had a concept called enhancing, 
that basically said, this instrument actually gives us kind of richer data set for this kind of science that we're trying to do. They may not be the one telling me what the thickness of the ice shell is, but they may be giving us, you know, some additional information that helps the scientists understand. And that's where discovery lies. You know, we can make all these plots all we want, but Europe is going to be what it is. <laughs> and so this is a way for, for everyone to visualize and understand what happens in fault scenarios or, or how how we can kind of best collaborate to say write papers or you know where those things might you know where, where the strengths of different uh, instruments lie and so, uh, so that as a p-staff matrix was a really critical way of kind of helping everyone understand how everyone was the swiss army knife uh, without trying to tell people you have to write your requirements this way um, and so i guess the, the soapbox i was trying to get up on was that you know, as systems engineers were taught how to do a functional flowdown, and in a traditional requirements sense, everything's an and, right? Mm -hmm. You don't get to pick which set of requirements you want to do. But the truth is that when you're talking about instruments, and, and especially such a rich suite of instruments that Clipper has, <laughs> if I just told them, well, pick the one that you want me to, to write down, like you would lose information. And so it's really about systems engineers being kind of humble and listening to what the scientists are telling us and figuring out how to codify and extract value from that and kind of communicate that across. Because the answer was not, there's a rigid and structure of functional flow down where every instrument has exactly one purpose and that's it. Because that's just not how Clipper is. And so finding a way to, to use the systems engineering like concepts, but, but not necessarily a particular technique and developing a technique that best communicated that was kind of what I think staff really offered, especially at the P-staff level, um, because it helped It helped even you know, all the way up to headquarters, for example, I think, where it's able to understand better that everyone works together and that this is not just a matter of, do I want this one measurement or five? You know, it really is a suite of complementary um, complementary observations that all you know are gonna make some really incredible science when they get that data back. I think one of the things that I, I really appreciated the most that like the, the P-staff paper kind of highlighted was the fact that all of these instruments really were like a Swiss army knife and that having a framework to sort of help you understand how all of the measurements complemented each other and, you know, also even just draw attention to how to think about risk if you're mm -hmm. new to a lot of these instruments, like oh, if we lose eyes, how how does that impact the other kind of science measurements that we want to do? And especially because like at the end of the day, you can have instruments that underperform for, you know, a, a number of reasons, like something happens with how a vendor manufactures something, or you discover something later on in your testing that you just didn't foresee. And mm -hmm. your performance is, you know, a little bit less than what you were hoping for. And so having a way to like, especially for a project like Clipper, like trace that back to higher up conversations, for example, of like, oh, you know, if Ethemus was underperforming, um, you know, that's going to go back to the spacecraft team and project management in general. And they're going to have to understand, okay, well, what does this mean for the larger picture of this project? Uh, and if you don't have that, that framework, then it becomes just a massive effort to figure out how that fits in um so i i really i don't know i, I found the p-staff paper and i just got like super excited <laughs> yeah and you know the thing that's really cool for me was that you know i'm working with this this team of incredible people who immediately see it and they know the potential for it right so they, they see that we organize the information we got this down but people 
on the team actually picked it up and like kept going. I mentioned Ben uh, took the M staff and was able to develop this amazing, incredible tool that we use to this day to like manage tour design. But like um, Kelly McCoy is another person I worked with who she actually uh, had a, headed up a team that took that and actually did some Monte Carlo analysis. Because one of our big things we were worried about again was radiation. Mm. Our, you know, what is likelihood over this time period that we're going to be able to make the mission work and meet all of our objectives in the face of such a uh, horrible radiation environment? And so there's a lot of question of like, what is the probability that this is going to be okay, right? And so what happened was that we took this peace staff and we said, okay, we have a timeline where uh, Veritas and the, and that tells us what all the opportunities for observations are. And let's go in and Monte Carlo a bunch of fault cases. And we're not doing it randomly. We have a bunch of information from Galileo and like all the actual statistics that Kelly put together on like what a reasonable estimate for outages um, might be, right? So you can take chunks of the timeline out and say, okay, radiation hit us. We can't do anything at this time. And you can actually go through and say, did I meet the requirements or not for the tour? Mm. Because all of those have been codified in Veritas. Like you can assess based on a tour. Did you get the 10% of the surface you did? Did you actually get the time durations you needed every two hours or whatever? And so he's got all that coded in. So you can do it in a... Um, in a Monte Carlo sense, you can assess, okay, for different radiation rates, say exactly at Galileo rates or two times or three times historic average, what are the probabilities and which L1s are met or not based on all the and org tables that we put together, right? Because in a rigid sense where you only write requirements and only understand the ANDs where that instrument is a single point failure for every single thing, of course, you know, you get one radiation hit and that's the end. <laughs> perhaps, unless you have some, you know, margin in the ops or something. But like in this case, we didn't have to deal with that. We had a bunch of like ores and kind of less great, but still viable ways of getting to the L1s, for example. And so I can tell you that some L1s are impervious to radiation and some of them actually are very affected by it. And then you can figure out exactly which kinds of flybys were affected. You know, is, is a, you could go down to like the point of, if I lose any given flyby for any, for this tour, do I, how many of my L1s are still met, right? So you can basically mix the entire flyby, or you could say one instrument had an anomaly and it's out for that whole flyby, and I don't get any of the data for that flyby. How sensitive am I to all of these different elements of the mission? And that gives you a sense of robustness. So that was actually used to decide, for example, do we need flyby recovery? Do we need the ability for the spacecraft to realize that something bad happened and do um, during the flyby without talking to the ground an autonomous reset? So they could come back and, um, and try to keep taking data. And so those type of engineering trades, that was a lot of scope that we would have to put into it. And the question was, do we need to? And this kind of statistical analysis helped inform um, those answers. And so uh, without these kind of tools and without this kind of information, you would have been just trying to go on, you know, kind of subject matter experts, best estimates and kind of intuition and trying to like assess risk in a kind of, risk matrix way, but you wouldn't actually have hard numbers on like, hey, yeah. we're very sensitive to this. And no one's going to go in and say the Monte Carlo run meant that we have like a 96% chance of meeting the cell one or anything. But on a relative sense, you could say, these are the other ones I'm sensitive to. These are the flyby types that I'm sensitive to. Maybe you add more margin and say, oh, when I have a flyby that has, you know, this particular geometry, like if that gets taken out, it's really bad, right? <laughs> so maybe you put a few more of those in so that you have a little bit better chance of not having that problem. So it really helped like add robustness where it mattered and not just kind of blanket or intuition level as a really bringing a level of, of rigor and understanding to the engineering process where these kind of complex questions, I think, you know, are just very difficult to answer without that kind of information. 
Yeah, and I, I'm sure that also just really helps to, given the fact that large programs like Europa Clipper are also, you know, we rely very heavily on sort of government funding and being able to you know, report, you know, up the chain, this is how this is how your tax dollars will be implemented or will be impacted by uh, whether or not we meet these objectives. So yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I think it's really important for systems engineers to have a role in understanding kind of communication, right? Like we want to make sure that we're communicating things. And one of the things that Sarah and I were felt very strongly about as systems engineers is that we didn't want to absorb the role of the scientists, right? The scientists are giving us this information and we're trying to codify it so that it's more clear to everyone, but in the end it's their information. And any model has its weaknesses and you have to be able to understand that, right? We can only write down a piece staff for the science we understand and know and can anticipate. What you don't know is like where something's gonna surprise us. And we're so glad we had that, you know, that observation there that didn't seem to have value up front because we had never done it before. But this is exploration. There's stuff out there that we're not gonna have done before. And so you wanna you know, leverage the fact that the scientists are the best position to tell us where things really hurt and where thing where that kind of gradient is. And so that being said, you know, being able to work with them and say, hey, this is your information, your tool, you guys can look at it, you can tear it apart, you know, tell us where we're wrong. And the fact that the scientists themselves, I think, found some value out of it. You know, the, the PSTAF matrix, we had the science leadership fill out on their own first, like which observations do they think contributed to which science? But they have their own like discipline expertise, right? Like they, they're, they're some of them are geologists or whatever. That doesn't mean that they're experts in all of the science. And so they filled it out and then we gave it to the PIs on the instrument teams and said, here's what your science leadership thinks you're doing to contribute to this. Tell us, tell us what you think. And so it was a, a chance for the scientists to kind of structure the conversation where the PIs were like, wait, you think I'm only enhancing on this? No, this is like so important to my science. And they could kind of put together a presentation and they had like conversations as scientists like saying, no, this is why I think this is important. The leadership, well, this is how I'm important I'm interpreting the L1s. And like they kind of came to a consensus at, at a very like granular level, like, oh yeah, if that's how the L1s interpreted, then I agree, we're enhancing on that one or whatever. And so those conversations happened all over the place and it helped really, not just helped everyone understand each other better, but it helped write it down in a way that they could access later, right? So they had that conversation, they all agreed to it. And then later it was a great reference if someone was asked about how that particular observation contributed to something, we all kind of agreed this was the level of contribution. And I think that really did help communicate across the team, across the scientists, across all these experts in their own discipline, but understanding everyone else a little bit better. And like you said, all the way up to people who wanted to understand what they were getting out of this really rich suite of instruments. They, they really wanted to understand you know, how their money's being spent and how the suite worked together. And I think, I'd like to think at least that this, uh, this kind of tooling and communication tool helped people understand why this was not a, like a standalone thing. We were really operating as a school of fish where we all kind of had our individual element to play, but we really did have this coordinated understanding of everything. And so I think, um, I'd like to think that that helped, you know, better communicate the, the value of this as a payload, not just as individual instruments. Um, one quick question before we go on. Um, do you have a hard stop? Uh, I, I see that we're like at the end of the hour now, and I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. No, I, I mean, I love talking about this and I don't have a hard stop. It's probably more you because it's uh, East Coast time. So let me know when you need to, to run off. Okay. Okay, cool, cool. J just check in there. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. So there's, I, f I 
feel there's a bunch of tangents that I'm I'm interested to kind of follow up on. Sure. Um, so maybe to to kind of just no, I'm going to back up more. <laughs> um, so maybe just to to sort of summarize the I, I guess development process between uh between these things and and because uh, I I guess I'm sort of when I when I read the paper I was curious about like. You know when exactly this came about in the development process, um, and and what was the you know the the thing that sparked it, and it, it mm. sounds like, or and I guess when I say um, it, I'm sort of referring to you know the this this need to create these these P staff and M staff matrices to, um, you know, do exactly what you said, like co codify like. Uh, you know, what are the scientific objectives and then how does that trace down to, you know, the, the level one requirements and, and how we're ultimately trying to develop these instruments. Um, and so it it sounds like, if if I'm paraphrasing this correctly, um, it was sort of through making the instrument designs more mature, getting into the CONOPS, uh, trying to, you know, actually put requirements to these sort of gave rise to, okay, well, what, you know, what measurements do we actually need? Um, how does that impact things? And then in sort of laying that out, um, trying to get like a, a picture of it in front of you, and then, you know, sort of starting to sync those across other instruments to make sure everything kind of meshed. Mm -hmm. um, that's where yeah. you guys came up with the need to make like this this measurement traceability matrix mm -hmm. and then that you know also necessitated the need to make like a, a one at the project level where you're you're linking that to the overall science goals yeah i'll let the siren pass so it doesn't uh, mess your <laughs> body um so yeah so this came about probably within a year like you said about 2016 um when sarah and i started it and i think we published like three years worth of papers so it did develop over the course of multiple years um mm -hmm. as we added to it and kind of developed it more we tried to publish a little bit more about each each time but it really started um it started with the m staff it started with the measurement we called them measurement checkers even at the time because they as, as instrument engineers sarah and i were and the other ius were asked here are the 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 measurement requirements we got from the instrument teams tell us if they're complete and correct like tell us if they're they're done like look them over essentially and sarah and i were like I mean, you know neither of us are scientists we're not instrument experts in the particular discipline to the point you know these instrument sciences have written these beautiful requirements and so we were like kind of like okay how do we how do we know what to even ask yeah where do we even start like <laughs> yeah exactly and so so both of us kind of independently started trying to like organize it in a way where we could better understand meaningful questions to ask of the of the teams. Um, and we started comparing notes and realized we were both trying to do the same thing and that there was a lot of benefit to comparing the visible imager with the ultraviolet imager, for example. Mm. I was like, hey, your, your imager team wrote these requirements and it seems like that should apply to any detector. Why isn't it on this side or, you know, vice versa? And so in that process, we started realizing that maybe we could come up with a <laughs> more sirens. Um, <laughs> maybe that we could come up with a framework that actually, you know, codified what those different pieces of, you know, a measurement requirement might be. And maybe we could have a general understanding. And that would help us find out if anything was missing. 
And it wasn't just a matter of, oh, you have an SRI requirement and I don't. It was like, we needed to understand the, that measurement quality was a thing you cared about and that some instruments cared about some qualities and some did not and trying to understand the differences between them. And so that's really how it started because we put this together. And on top of this, there are two other big forces for starting in staff. One was that I told you that every institution came to this with a different systems engineering philosophy. And so everyone had a different view of requirements. And I think uh, some institutions had a concern about being seen as too scope heavy by having too many requirements. And some others were very worried about not getting the things they needed. And so they wrote a ton of requirements. So we had a huge spread in the numbers of requirements and there was a lot of sensitivity to like, are we equally covered? And we didn't want variations in people's, you know, systems engineering, like intuition on what the right number, kind of the adequate number of requirements might be to lead to imbalances in how we treated them, right? We wanted to kind of have a consistent way of normalizing it so that all the instruments were covered in a way that was appropriate to what their instrument needed without kind of being skewed by that, right? And so, um, so that was one force. And then um, so I think uh, I think that was a big piece of us trying to help figure out how to, to put them all together. Um, so we we put these together. We, we did it for our instruments that we were responsible for, and it worked really well. We were like, hey, we found some missing requirements. And even though we're not experts in the particular science that's going on here, we actually found holes or we found requirements that were written ambiguously. We didn't know where to put them in the matrix. We didn't really understand them. And so we talked to the scientists, we understood it, and we either rewrote the requirement or we reworked our matrix our framework to accommodate the fact that we had missed something. We didn't really understand it. Um, and so the other driving force at the time was that our systems engineering team at the, at the project level were trying to, to codify how to deal with this kind of uncertainty in the face of radiation. And so what happened, just as a, a quick example, I know that you talked in some of your questions about like uh, like vocabulary and how like words matter, right? So this, this is a very big lesson from the, the staff exercises Sarah and I found out. Um, but we had a requirement, for example, early on, it's, it's gone now, that uh, we shall have a, you know, I'm going to make up numbers, but there's like 99% chance of returning all data sets or, you know, something like that, right? And data set was not defined and each instrument team used the word data set. They were encouraged to use a data set, but one instrument meant that the data set was all the data they collected. Another instrument used a data set to mean um, the different sciences. So there was like an atmospheric science data set for their instrument and a surface science data set for their instrument. Another instrument used um, different techniques. So uh, I think this was like visible imagery. They had like the stereo data set and the color data set, right? And so if you tell them that they have to have some percentage of the data sets returned, they mean different things when you write them differently because the word data set was not fine and meant different things. And that was not a consistent way to, to try to manage the requirements. We, we didn't want to pick, you know, X percent of, of data sets based on how the instruments were thinking of them. We wanted them to be like consistent with the, the science objectives, et cetera. And so as systems engineers, Sarah and I went back to the science team, it's like, we need, and you guys can call whatever data sets you want, but like we need to be consistent in our requirements to say what a data set is. And so we settled on a science data set because that was the one that was most directly traceable to our L1s. And there was some like, you know, people had to kind of rethink about it on, on the instrument side. 
But really, that's kind of where we landed. And um, it worked out really well because it helped us build the bridge into PSTAF. So we did MSTAF. There was a lot of like ahas. We, we finally understood, you know, Reason has this really complex set of measurements that um, all kind of interlock and, and everyone kind of would give the leery eye to the hundred requirements that they had because it was just so dense and very difficult to understand if you just read them straight linearly, right? But uh, we applied the piece or the MSTAF matrix to the hundred requirements they had, and suddenly even the science team was using it to like cross-reference. Oh, which which requirements are the ones that have you know the crossover frequency or whatever? Like they'd go down and they'd be able to find it. Oh, and awesome. it was just like they were it. like they they were using it because it was just it's dense and you know, requirement nine versus requirement 19 might be the same kind of requirement, but they're not next to each other. And it's just really hard when you have that many. And right. so, um, so anyway, everyone was pretty happy. Like, okay, we've got a way to understand it. We've got a way to make sure that our number of requirements match the number of constraints that are needed. And it's kind of a consistent definition that data set actually, a science data set means something consistent across the project. So if we needed to at the project level, we could talk about them meaningfully and kind of on equal footing. So that kind of worked out well, but then the kind of next step was working with the project science team at the project level and saying, hey, we have all these observations. Now we understand what every every row, every kind of observation now, we have a whole row that tells us all the things we need to know, the conditions, the coverage, the quality, but how do we link that up to the L1s? Mm -hmm. And so that's where this PSTAF matrix came in where Every time we talked to them, we were like trying to write it down. Like, okay, let's just like say, here's all the observations that we have rows for. We know what the requirements are of them. Does that contribute to ice ocean science? And they'd be like, well, yes, but it's only the ice side and it's only this type of approach. And so when they tell you that, instead of like, you know, blocking them out and say, that's not part of my matrix, <laughs> you have to figure it out. We just started adding rows to the matrix. So we're like, oh, okay. So ice and ocean science was the, the theme that we were given, but they're actually different. Okay, let's have an ice science and an ocean science section. You said there are different ways of doing the ice science. Tell me about that. And we just like listen to them and write it down. And then they could actually answer the question without it being like a lot of hedging because we were like making the structure match what they were telling us. And so then they could say, oh yes, for you know, the surface scans for this instrument on the night side or whatever, then this definitely contributes in this way. And so they were able to answer. And once we got to that kind of certainty where there wasn't a lot of hedging, where they're kind of like looking at our matrix, like, I don't know how to answer your question. We knew we kind of like got to the sweet spot of like usefulness. Um, and so, you know, the M staff worked really well with the instrument teams and then the P staff really helped the project's science side really understand their side of it. And then the merging together, you know, there was a lot of worry that like writing this down was going to become some sort of like, I think it was accused of being a D-scope machine at one point oh. that people were going to like turn a crank and like, you know, without any input from the science community who helped give us the inputs to make that possible, we're going to try to like make decisions and slice and dice things without fully understanding it. And so again, that's where Sarah and I's philosophy that like, this was a, a tool really by scientists facilitated by systems engineers, but for the scientists for how to communicate it and how to interpret it, it was really important not to not to try to go too far afield without letting the scientists kind of interpret the results themselves, right? And so, you know, I think some some PIs liked that more than others, uh, but uh, but I think that the fact that the you know the instruments are are gonna fly and they're all you know yeah spread <laughs> delivered and getting in there. And you know they didn't turn a big crank and try to lop off a bunch of the instruments. Uh, is is you know 
to me, <laughs> uh, helps me sleep knowing that, uh, that this tool was was more about communicating the, the breadth and the, the interconnectedness of the payload and why it's not a good idea to try to like take out any one of them because all of them help add robustness to the really complex mission we have and the really you know gnarly environment we're going to go into. Um, and so, uh, so I think that was a really important part of understanding that this is this is a cohesive whole. You can't just like you know pick out one and try to try to take it down. Um, they 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 need each other, and that the science is going to be that much richer for it. So that there was a lot of like you know communicating and talking with scientists, and you know we we a lot of the P staff like roll ups and stuff like that were just on an Excel because the scientists all had access to it and had a kind of like an open community feel. And we distributed it. We have it published. APIs could like go through it and say, no, I don't like this, or you did this math wrong. And we took all that feedback and made sure that like, you know, people had a chance to, you know, there was no mystery model or something like that. And I feel like sometimes um, systems engineers think about the tooling that works best for them and not where their data is coming from. You know, I think that uh, it, if we had done this in some sort of really complex modeling tool or some sort of database where the scientists weren't going to access or use it, it wouldn't have been successful because that kind of layer of difficulty in getting to it and understanding it um, would have been just too much. And this kind of nascent idea would have died there. But because it was just Excel, you could attach it to a file. You didn't have to have a special program. You could understand it once someone explained how, you, how to read it. Right. Um, really, I think, helped make it more easily adopted because people just had it on their computer and could be like, oh, yeah, that's what that means and find what they needed to. It sounds like this sort of really became refined by just continuing to kind of like refine the the scope of what people were were trying to say and, and making sure like it wasn't too broad. Maybe to, to tie this to something that you talk about in the paper, you, you know, you mentioned that a lot of missions will refer to like a science traceability matrix for mm -hmm. developing level one requirements. And I, I, I think for, you know, if a mission's sort of simple enough, like that can work really well. But for something like Clipper, um, it, it seemed like just using sort of a broad traceability matrix to derive those didn't mesh very well with all of the the instruments that you guys were trying to uh to to include um and so like i i even went back and looked at our traceability matrix for the the cubesat that i worked on and um i don't know like it it did seem like when we first wrote the the proposal for phoenix like the objectives were still very broad and we didn't really do a lot of that like necking down of um you know what is it specifically that we're trying to do like for example i got it up right here like you know we say we want to identify short time scale variations in the thermal properties of urban environments but like what do short time scale variations mean and um you know, how are we identifying urban environments, that kind of thing. And and so like, like when we started it and wrote the proposal, like our traceability matrix was just way too broad and we, we didn't have an appropriate framework for this. And it actually caused us a lot of problems um, after we got funding for the CubeSat because we were then trying to actually write better like level one requirements and, and level twos and level threes and just understand what the system should look like. And mm -hmm it was not it became clear to us that we didn't fully understand like exactly what we were trying to measure on the science side uh and that there was still more work to be done to sort of refine what it was we were trying to look for um 
And so I, I feel like, you know, if university students, you know, come across like the paper on PSTAF and MSTAF, they'll just benefit significantly from just having a framework of like, what, you know, what questions do I even ask? What does a data set mean? Um, how, how do I think about this? How do, how do I think about like, what observations that am I taking? Like, is it, is it on a global scale? Is it, is it local? Is it, is it regional? Um, you know, how long do I have to take these measurements for? Like the, the paper kind of dives into a lot of that. Um, and I, I think, I think if we had had that when we were writing the proposal, we probably wouldn't have been a little bit farther along um, earlier on um, than, than I think we were. Um, so I don't know, that's definitely something that I, I appreciated about that resource. Yeah, I mean, you have to start broad when you're starting with proposals. Um, but I think, yeah, having like something to just look at to say, did I ask all the right questions? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that it's, it's invaluable, right? Because that's how we discovered a lot of holes on Clipper even, you know, just we, we had the benefit of having all the instruments trying to do the same thing at the same time with enough level of detail and access to all of the, all of the different perspectives. And again, you know, institutions that were coming to coming to it, you know, there are done uh, like I think four or five uh, remote sensing instruments and all of them need, you know, they have detectors, they're all trying to do something by capturing light and certain spectrum. Like there, there should be some similarities in, in patterns and the requirements. And if, if you see patterns on one side that you can learn from and say, hey, does this apply to you? And if not, why not? That, that is something that, that we benefited from immensely on the payload side. And so the fact that we could kind of generalize that and hopefully offer other people checklists of places to start, you know, it doesn't cover x-ray instruments or some other like fun stuff, but, you know, it, it gives you a place to look for commonalities and say, okay, what are the general properties of this kind of measurement that I'm trying to make? And how, how do I check to see if it matters for the particular science I'm doing, right? And so that cross-section of the specific science observation and the specific, you know, attribute of the measurement and that matrix level information is really important. I think science traceability matrices, when when they're often first started, are very they, they don't always be benefit from the like second dimension of the matrix, right? Sometimes they're very much like broken down, and sure they're in like a a, a spreadsheet, but they're almost always linear. They're always like this type of you know, goal leads to this measurement, and you know it. It kind of gives you a branch for a given objective, but it doesn't necessarily help you understand the connections between, okay, if I need this kind of instrument to make objective one, what about objective three? Does it need the same instrument? Does it need the same observations? Or does it need different ones? Do I need the different spectra for them or not? And so if you take advantage of the fact that it's a two-dimensional spreadsheet and actually try to put the information on the columns, rather than just breaking it down into an individual little tree, if you're trying to really understand the connections between those trees, you better understand your payload as a whole rather than just an individual sciencing. And that is one of the things that Clipper did to, to understand the synergies that were in this really awesome payload, but also helped us as systems engineers better understand, hey, shouldn't you have a spectra requirement or a bandwidth requirement? Um, and, and so all of those things kind of helped to lock it in in a way that, you know, the, the kind of keystone in an arch or something like once you have that, you kind of have a structure to frame yourself around. People can work from it. And the cool thing is that being around such intelligent people, as soon as you explain the framework to people, we did this all, you know, Sarah and I went to a bunch of parts of the project and said, hey, this is how we're organizing things. This is what this word means. <laughs> you see them in requirements. People took it and run with it. I mean, as soon as you 
show people a framework, they can use it as a lattice to, to build a bunch of really informa uh, information rich tooling and simulations and you kind of better understand the sensitivities in your system and you just become better systems engineers for having that framework we all can speak to. So I think that philosophy was one that I took forward when I went into the payload VNV role. And at some point we'll have to chat about that, but you know, having a framework and just saying, okay, we need to have a big picture. And I may not be able to fill in every detail for every one of those boxes, but if everyone says, okay, this is the goal and here's the names for all of these things, it goes a long way. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's your cat. <laughs> it goes a long way to helping people who, you know, are just trying to find this amazing team, like give them a framework to work together. And that can kind of gear everyone into the same uh, system. And then you get uh, a much more productive systems engineering effort. So I guess when you were getting feedback on this, were you mostly working with the scientists and the science PIs and maybe the like the instrument systems engineers to kind of like, um, I guess, massage this a lot? Like you really only kind of need like a, a core team to sort of figure out if the structure is good. And then, you know, from there, it can sort of trickle down to all the other parts. I mean, you want to make sure you've identified your stakeholders. Right? That's like one of the big systems engineering mm -hmm. things to do is figure out your stakeholders. And um, the people we worked with on staff, uh, like I mentioned before, when we started MSAP, it was really Sarah and I trying to say, you know, how do we how do we look at this set of requirements and understand, just understand the period, but also help provide feedback that's meaningful to the teams that, you know, have been working on these instruments for decades. So um, we, we wanted to find a way to, to help understand them as a whole. And, and so I think, um, the instrument teams and the PIs and really the instrument systems engineers are really critical to, to gaining that understanding, especially at the M staff level. And then at the P staff, the project leadership, um, both on systems engineering and the science side, you know, our systems engineering, uh, our project systems engineer at the time understood that this was really powerful and gave us a lot of like encouragement to try to keep pushing this. And then uh, the payload management actually really strongly supported us. You know, we were instrument engineers working under the payload office. In theory, pushing this idea was not necessarily, you know, directly just interfacing with the instruments in the way that uh, maybe a job description might have said. But I think everyone saw how powerful it could really be and how beneficial to the project it was. And so we were given a lot of leeway to to kind of meet with the people we needed to and you know sit in offices of scientists for however many hours we needed to and go to the project science group meetings and show them what we were trying to do and solicit their feedback. Um, and so that kind of gave us the the you know, the freedom we needed to to really do a lot of that work. I think that um, the the people that we really wanted to make sure believed in the product well, was the science team because that's really where this was going, right? Mm -hmm. And we really, really did not want this to become again a beep boop system steering tool that could be used to like make decisions and cut out science. So that's that's that was our greatest fear the whole time was that someone would try to you know, misuse this tool. And so um, so it was constantly and we kept in mind like, you know, what what caveats do need to be on this information and how do we how do we work with the science team to get enough of a consensus that this is something that we can actually like use to generate results in the project and not something that, you know, will upend the whole like science expertise that they bring to this and are kind enough to share with us enough in enough detail for us to try to write some of it down. And, you know, just that kind of level of understanding that this is not the only science picture that will ever exist. And this is not even the complete one. This is just, 
you know, a slightly better approximation, one more Newton perhaps in like expansion or whatever of um, Taylor City's expansion of this, like to get a little bit closer to what the real science is. But um, there are a lot of nuances that it could capture, but we try to capture the most important ones that are gonna give us the most valuable understanding of the sensitivities in the system. Um, so I think that was the biggest thing is that just the scientists told us when it made sense. And I will say like the first paper we published on PSTAF we use the word campaign to describe what we now call themes. And, you know, to the systems engineering brains, that made sense. Like, oh, these are the different, like, you know, science campaigns. But, like, that means something very specific in a science ops world in particular. And we had a lot of people from Cassini where the, the word campaign, like, meant something extremely specific. And they just kept, they just, like, did not like that word. And we had already written the paper on it. And we had it in, like, all of our presentations. We were like, but do you really need to change the word? And like, they just kept saying, that's not what a campaign is. And like, you know, it's, a, it's an easy thing for us to be like, okay, this is not for us. This is not about how easy it is to change slides. This is like, if the scientists can't, can't get behind the idea that this is a campaign, let's call it something else. And so just coming up with a word that was neutral enough to not, you know, be hijacked by preconceptions. So we went with theme uh, as a way to kind of make it easier for people to, to parse. Um, you know, that kind of, again, willingness to listen, willingness to like adjust so that we could better meet the needs of the stakeholders was a really important part of the process. And it took years. I mean, it, it you know, people were skeptical. They didn't really understand why this was going to be useful. They were very worried about it. But I think in the end, it's proven to be valuable. And I, you know, we, we did kind of as the phase D started up and said, okay, we've gotten through this design phase. Now that we've been through all of the all of the adventures together on this, was it worth it? And I think the conclusion, at least from the leadership side, was that yeah, you know, this is something that they'd want on a project. They'd they'd go uh, on the next project they have. And so I think there was um, a lot of satisfaction knowing that like it took years to convince people that this was something that was worth their time to like invest in and understand but that it did what it needed to on Clipper and hopefully in the future. And I've used it in a smaller version to just like help with proposal studies. If you're trying to do mm -hmm. architecture studies, like you don't know what your payload is yet, but you know, you might have, you know, some suite of instruments. Well, how would they play together and what kinds of observations would they contribute to? So I make like little mini P staff matrices even then and just say, hey, tell me about these different instruments and how they might contribute to this kind of science. And it, it helps you kind of just sketch things out even before you're trying to go into writing requirements with them. So there's just that flexibility in thinking and the willingness to listen to the scientists. And if they're telling you that it, it's really simple, it's one-to-one, -one, this observation is this one thing, like don't try to make it complicated. <laughs> like don't add complexity where there isn't any, but it's really more about listening to the people who are telling you the information and acknowledging that your processes are flexible enough to, to accommodate the nuances that they're trying to tell you. Because that's one of the like classic science versus engineering like challenges is right. Scientists are like, well, it depends. <laughs> and <laughs> engineers are just like, well, tell me the line and I'll write the requirement on that line. And then yeah. <laughs> you know, but the scientists are like, well, it's a gradient, like more is better. <laughs> like, you know, and then we're just like, well, how much more? So it's just like this kind of like this challenge is is classic, but I think trying to find ways of capturing some of that nuance in a way that gives us the information we need without making the requirements impossible to write was a really cool part of what Sarah and I did with this framework. Or over constraining the design too. Like right. I think that's always like 
a big worry with requirements is is that you you sort of dig yourself into a hole and you kind of you kind of lose sight of like the the big picture um and i think this helps give you a very clear view for like what that big picture still is Yeah, I mean, you can you can imagine having a, a completionist, if you will, like, oh, this this hole in my matrix. Why did, why don't you have an SNR requirement or whatever? Um, you know, can can seem burdensome. But one of the things that was really cool about the the it wasn't just the framework, but it was like the whole suite of tools and like analyses that went around it from the whole team. Like I mentioned before, you know, the statistical analysis or the Veritas mission design analysis. They were able to do um, some assessments to actually figure out what was really key in driving. I mean, I know that as systems engineers, we assign key in driving assessments to requirements, but it's usually by, you know, kind of an, an understanding of the system and like an intuition. It's not like a, this is key or driving. Um, with this assessment, we could actually do a bunch of um, basically grid analyses to say, which requirements are actually driving the mission. <laughs> like this requirement is the one that's telling me I fail if you know I if I have too many radiation faults or whatever. This is the requirement that fails and causes that to happen. So we were able to identify, we had like a like over a hundred um yeah I think it was like over 200 like measurement requirements. We were able to identify the nine that were driving like by analysis. Like you could actually say if you do not met, like this requirement is the one that, that tells me how many flybys I have to have or exactly what geometries I have to have. You, you knew which ones they were. And so it's true that we had a whole bunch of them, uh, but yeah, we we didn't have to sit on every one of them and go through them individually as a, a systematic list and say, oh, you have to bring this number down. Do you really need you know five solar occultations? Can you do two? And you know, we didn't have to do that because it wasn't driving anything. It wasn't actually the opportunities are so rich that we could just get them no matter what kind of radiation faults or whatever we got. Right. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have to worry about those. We just left them be like they were whatever requirement value the instrument team told us. It was the handful that were actually driving us that we sat down and looked at and we went back and forth with the teams. There's a lot of discussion. Like, is this the right number for this small, tiny set? And once you've gotten that narrowed down and it makes sense, like it's not an instrument that shouldn't be driving that measurement or whatever, it shouldn't be driving that science. We knew we had the right set. I was like, yeah, it makes sense that reason should should be the one telling us exactly how many, you know, how much of the service we needed or whatever. Like those things help us focus our time, right? So yes, it can feel like a lot, but if you use the tools correctly, you can actually figure out which ones are the important ones because now you have partials. You can actually understand the sensitivity on either side of it and say, oh, here are the big peaks. Let me look, spend my time on that. And everyone else can kind of not worry about it. And so I think we, we were much more efficient about how we dealt with that. And then the cool thing about that Veritas tool I mentioned before is that like a big chunk of our requirements get verified with the push of the button. Like we can say our tour complies with all these requirements, like you know, surface coverage or whatever, because we have the tools to do that. And so we don't have to, you know, drag everyone through the mud of doing a bunch of analyses and putting together a bunch of verification reports, and all this stuff, because we've done enough validation with that tool and with the instrument teams to make sure that they trust the results to say when we say 90% of the moon is covered. From Veritas that we believe it, and that's enough to to say that the evidence is met for that particular plan, right? So, so I think yeah, if you go halfway and say I'm going to have a complete set of requirements, but then don't figure out which ones are the important ones for VNB or for uh, or for like actually doing the design, then yeah, you can end up with a, a heavy and kind of over constrained system. But if you recognize that now you have enough information to go and do it the way that a systems engineer would love to and say, oh, these are the, the ones we dig into, then it really 
comes full circle and uh, you know you, you can know that you're spending your time in meetings that are really going to make a difference. Um, and I'm curious too. So uh, in terms of like how P staff and M staff have developed over, you know, the past couple of years, like with MBSC sort of coming more into the picture with systems engineering, are there pathways for, you know, P staff and M staff starting to get integrated with sort of MBSC processes or is it still kind of, does that not make sense for kind of like how it's structured or? Yeah, I think that's, it's really a matter of how you see MBSC. So if that means SysML and kind of modeling language, mm -hmm. then maybe there's a bigger gap to be closed there. I don't think we've like formally tried to do that. But in the sense of like the spirit of model-based systems engineering, where you're trying to use a shared set of models and frameworks for understanding things to like be the central font that everyone goes to, to, to like interpret things and that everyone can kind of build on that. I think this was model-based systems engineering um, in that spirit, right? So I think, um, you know, the, the thing that made it a successful implementation of like a centralized you know, model, if you will, is that the people who needed to control the information did, like it was the right people who had access to the information. It wasn't some third party who was trying to like interpret it and, and kind of it was behind a curtain, right? If the scientists couldn't understand literally every single piece of it, they weren't gonna buy into it. And so giving them the tools and especially like I've mentioned before, being in Excel and the fact that every single one of them could open it and access it and rip it apart was really, really important because you know, a lot of these UML and model-based things are kind of in uh, tooling that requires specialized training and you have to kind of like teach yeah. people a lot of things. The natural language isn't always one-to-one -one with what your uh, scientist intuition might be and what that word should be. And because we were making up the framework ourselves, we could say, oh, campaign doesn't work for you. Let's say theme. Like we just changed the word because it didn't matter to us. But if you're trying to use it in some sort of like uber formalized sense where it's like, this is what that word means. You have to use that like relationship name or whatever. It becomes harder to adjust to the realities on the ground. So I think, um, but that being said, you know, Clipper uh, did do some model-based systems engineering. There's a paper uh, that uh, Todd Brown, uh, uh, no, Todd Bayer uh, put out. So I'll have to see his paper, but, um, but yeah, so we, we had like some systems engineers publish on kind of a summary of like what types of model-based systems engineering work for Clipper. And some things worked really well and some things did not. And the things that did not work well were ones where, you know, you had to kind of have like the, the priesthood class, the model in interfacers who understood, who understood all of the like inner workings of the model. And you had to go, to go through them to get the information back and forth. If you had to have that layer, it became difficult even for systems engineers. Like early on, I was asked, what is the mass of your instrument that you're working with, right? Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, what do you want the information for? Because if you're trying to do it as a roll up against the, you know, the mass allocation, that's one thing. If you're trying to understand thermal inertia, that's a very different thing. If you're trying to like understand the launch mass versus the shipping mass, those are different things because there's removal for items. So all of those things matter in the context, even something as simple as a mass number, like people will try to use a model. Like if you put a, if you put one number in there, no explanation, it's 10 kilograms. Someone's going to try to go take that model and say, oh, I can figure out the thermal inertia now, or I can compute my shipping values for like what I need the truck to have. And they like skip some of the pieces. Right. And so as a systems engineer, or as a scientist, people naturally get defensive about that information and say, well, 
you're just gonna have to come to me. And that's what where model these systems engineering can break down because it, the first time it gets misused like that, people get burned and they don't want they don't want to put their information into the system because they know that they're not being cut out of it. It makes it very difficult to help people understand the nuances of the, the information they're giving. And so I think, you know, just kind of philosophically, NDSC really needs to find a way to like connect to the stakeholders where that information is or find ways of capturing that nuance in a way that everyone understands so that there's more trust. And so there are ways to do it. Like I said, I think we did that successfully with staff, but we had to be extremely careful about it. And, and by keeping that information where it needed to be and every single time anyone asked us anything about it, we were extremely explicit about the limitations. Um, I think that that helped it be adopted in a way that UML kind of formalized stuff was more challenging on something like Cooper and didn't ultimately get used. One more question before we start to wrap up here mm -hmm. um, that I'm curious about is given that JPL has done large spacecraft in the past, um, did you, I guess, get a sense for like, like what was the equivalent process for doing this for say Cassini or, or Juno where there's still a lot of instruments um, you know, but they didn't have sort of this framework, but, you know, we still had to sort of like develop all of that traceability anyway. So I, I guess, like you mentioned that there were um, other scientists who had worked on Cassini, for example. Um, so were they kind of providing, um, I guess, some guidance with how to structure the, the matrix based on their experience? Or, or was Europa Clipper like so much more different in, in what it was studying and the instruments involved to where this this was kind of more appropriate for now. Yeah, so, um, you know, Juno and Cassini were before my time. So I, I was obviously not working on them. Um, and uh, I think, but, but we did have people from those projects on Clipper. It was a huge project at GPL. And I in particular worked with Trina Ray. She's this amazing scientist who took me under her wing and helped guide me through the, the the forest of reason requirements to actually make him step work and now um, is working in the project uh, the project science leadership on clipper uh, and she had a lot of cassini ops experience and uh, so she was an extremely valuable <laughs> resource for helping me understand how to navigate that science and systems engineering boundary using a lot of her ops experience and how things worked but i will say that you know, the, the governing philosophies for Cassini was different than the one uh, that was set out for Clipper. You know, um, there were the, the ideas of, say, dedicated flybys, where certain instruments got to kind of control what a flyby looked like on Cassini, is my understanding. Um, and so they didn't, the, the way that they were structured didn't require the same level of, like, interconnected understandings, because they had, um, you know, they weren't in this radiation belt, they didn't have kind of this concept of a a, a very small seeking uh, hourglass or something on like how many how much more dose you can take in the radiation belt and um and so my my understanding again as an outsider from Cassini is just that uh, the systems engineering didn't require it I don't think it would have hurt it I think that if they had this concept then that they probably could have found some value in it but I, I think that you know what the the team was called to do didn't require the same level of kind of integration and payload level understanding of everything and so it just wasn't needed at the time and so hmm. now that this idea exists and you don't have to invent it for your project you don't have to have something as complex as clipper to like benefit from it to, to use it as a structured way of 
having conversations, you know, what do the mission design people want to know? These are the, this is a checklist of conditions. Like that's a, just a useful thing to know about how, how these things are structured. Um, so now that we have it, I think we should use it. <laughs> but I think that, you know, we don't set out trying to, to solve problems beyond what, what we need to, to like make the mission work. And Cassini was obviously a hugely successful mission with just incredible science, even without some framework like this. And so um, I think the team did a great job, uh, but I'm hoping that the, the lessons that Trina and other scientists who had that kind of ops experience, uh, juice and all that stuff helped uh, kind of fold in information for how we could structure information to make it easier uh, for, for staff, in particular P-staff, to live beyond even phase D. Um, you know, there was this idea that maybe scientists could look at it and say, who could I collaborate with on this kind of science? They could actually use it as kind of a, a density map for like where the obvious joint papers might be, you know, or something like that, as they kind of thought across teams as a payload rather than just like what their specific science they were trying to accomplish might be. And so it's written right there, you know, if you want to do, yeah. Uh, you know, surface science of, uh, you know, regional scale geology, you know, who who gave which observations and, and you know, what level of, of collaboration might be there. And so I think that maybe thinking about that early on and kind of having that vision set out by Bob Pappalardo, um, maybe will extend into ops and, uh, you know, we'll be able to see it uh, evolve as, as we get to Jupiter. So... I hope I have at least, but this was a big team effort. I, I know I have a bunch of co-authors uh, on the staff papers. Sarah and I worked together really closely to, to make this happen. But all the people who built all the tooling around it and the analyses, it was it was really an incredible thing. It was, it was very cool to be a part of as a systems engineer. So I encourage you to, to go talk to them. If you need an introduction, let me know. I'm happy to put you in touch with anyone to talk about their side of this. But, um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of really cool work went into it and it was because we needed to for Clipper, but, um, you know, I think we all will benefit from that now new understanding. <laughs> I certainly did as a, I'm a much better systems engineer having been kind of a, an acolyte of all these fantastic institutions that have built these really incredible instruments. And, you know, Clipper's going to on track to launch in 2024. And um, I think we'll all benefit as a, as a species when we, we get all this cool science back and understand better how habitable worlds work. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm I'm just looking forward to just like watching this mission as it it launches and even as we get ready for just the Europa flyby and you know preparing for I know there's some concepts for like the Europa lander now and mm -hmm. um so it's just it, it's it's a very exciting time. Um for sure. <laughs> one more question that I want to circle back to before we yeah, wrap up. Sure. Um I do kind of want to go back to like how you got involved with the Europa Clipper. Um, I think especially because it, it's it's relevant to, you know, when when you're sort of new in a career, like how you go about following your passions and finding opportunities of things that you might be interested in. So so you you mentioned that you were working on more of like the sort of dynamic side of things, um, but had interest in Clipper. Uh, mm -hmm. so, so what was the link between you having an interest in the Clipper and them actually reaching out to you to take on like a payload engineer role in, in which, you know, you, you weren't familiar with this at all. Like, did you yeah. sort of slip it in someone's ear of like, Hey, I'd love to work on this. Even if it means like mopping the floors or something in the meetings <laughs> or <laughs> um, right. what, what was that, that link? Yeah. Um, so I think 
Sebastian Solos. The actual like logistics of getting introduced into the payload office is actually my co-author, Sarah Suska, had already moved into the payload office. And so um, she uh, was there and had mentioned that there's an opportunity and knew this was something I was excited about. So it's kind of networking with her when there was a, a kind of opening in, in my uh, plan for, for which projects I was working on. Um, and it was really the the faith that the payload manager at the time, Bell Thompson, uh, just had in me. Like, you know, I went and interviewed with her and said, this is what I wanted to do. And I, you know, knew that I didn't have a ton of experience with it, but, um, you know, she was willing to take a risk on me and, uh, and gave me the position. Um, and then the incredible UDS team. I mean, I learned so much under their wing because, uh, you know, I was working with them directly as my first uh, role in the payload office. And I mean, they're just incredible. They've been doing UVSs for ages and they uh, were so excited to share the science with me. Um, they were, you know, just incredibly open and friendly and uh, and really put together as a team. Like I, I was able to get really interesting information from them. They were able to explain their processes. So, so it was really the people that I was around that, that made the opportunity come to, to life. Um, it was being you know, genuinely interested and really listening to what people had to say and, and actually being you know interested in, in trying to ask questions and learn more um, that really, I think, kind of led to, to, the, to the rest of the career I had in the payload office. I was in the payload office for eight years in a variety of roles, but uh, my, my role as the UVS uh, instrument engineer was the first one. And, and that's kind of where, <laughs> where I found my footing and, and figured out how to how to really fit into this broader thing. Um, it was the UVS uh, requirements that made it, they, they had such a clear idea of what they had to do that made it obvious that there was a structure behind it that could be applied to other instruments. And so I really benefited from, from that clarity. So yeah, so I think that if like, you know, you're looking to move around in your own career, it's really a matter of, um, you know, being interested and open-minded and talking to people and um, you know, the combination of that and, having people around you who are willing to give you a chance, willing to talk to you really makes the community work. And I think it was a really productive partnership with all of those folks and I learned so much. Um, and so uh, they made me the engineer I am today. So I'm just incredibly grateful to all of them. And I think, uh, you know, what's the best part of working on Clipper is working with such an incredible team who was willing to do that kind of uh, work to help bring you up to speed. You know, like I mentioned, I, I can't even tell you how many hours I had those for uh, the science team and the PIs and everyone just like trying to explain to me who had no expertise in their field how they were doing their science so that I could fill out some of this information and uh, you know it wouldn't have worked without that kind of dedication and commitment to a broader understanding so you really have to have that kind of culture of openness and, and interest in bringing everyone up you know oh that's that's awesome uh, I think honestly I think like this whole story is just makes me love like Europa Clipper even more. <laughs> um, yes, it is an amazing mission. I just, I cannot wait. Uh, you know, we, the instruments are, are mostly delivered and like seeing it in the high bay is, is one of those moments where you're like, oh, wow. I remember back when that was a chunky CAD drawing on a piece of paper somewhere. <laughs> um, you know, and it's going to be at Europa and it's going to tell us a lot about you know, what, what it means to make a world habitable. It just, it's one of those things that like, are, I feel like as a species, this is that kind of question. It helps us really touch the the kind of meaning of humanity and like what our, our goal is as a species. It's just one of those like incredibly inspiring things. And so um, I'm, I'm can't even describe how it's been great. I love, it's been great career-wise. I've learned so much. And as an engineer, I've grown a lot under all, being alongside all these people, but as a species, we're just going to learn so much from this. Uh, random question. Yeah. 
What is your favorite nostalgic thing that's timeless and reminds you of your childhood? Oh. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> trying to like introduce like <laughs> fun out of the blue questions. I don't know if that <laughs> transitioned. That okay. <laughs> um, I will say that I wanted to be like involved in space somehow since I was four. And the way I discovered that I wanted to do it was actually at an Earth Day celebration that my mom took me to. And I was like, what's an Earth? <laughs> and I basically kicked it off. They were like, oh, it's a planet. I was like, it's a planet. And you know, kind of went down that, that rabbit hole. So I have a special place in my heart for Earth Day because that, um, plus, say, Star Trek and was where I got oh, yeah. the here. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so when you, you combine like the, the the just fascination with space and the celebration of the fact that you know we are a planet and we have to to understand how planets work to be able to take care of it properly, I think is a big part of it. Um, and then you know what engineers do and their kind of role in uh, a broader team. Uh, those those two things are very nostalgic for me and kind of how I got into this. So maybe that's does that answer <laughs> your question. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> oh, I, I I love that answer. Um... <laughs> And I guess for uh, just to say it while the recording's on, like I'm speaking just for myself and not for JPL or Caltech or NASA. They definitely wanted to make sure I uh, was clear because, you know, all mistakes are mine. <laughs> all right. You're you're on the hook. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm sorry for anyone I misrepresented or missed. Uh, but yeah, there's like some really cool uh, collection of papers out there. If this is like a topic that you really enjoy, you should definitely go out and um, and read, you know. Ben's papers and Kelly's papers and all these other people wrote some really cool stuff on like how Clipper worked. And it was just one of those, like, you know, just explosion of like, once someone does something really cool and everyone understands it, that other people do other things are even cooler and everyone builds on each other. It was just like this incredible systems engineering, like community that, that we all just kept saying, Oh, and also you can do this. It's really cool. Like as a small anecdote. So, you know, one of the things you can do with a piece staff matrix, if you have all these ands and ors is you understand what the single point failures are for the mission, right? Like if if reason were to have a fault or you know for some reason couldn't perform uh, the L1s, like we couldn't meet the the threshold mission, right? And so that's a really important thing to know, like which instruments have that kind of influence over the whole grid. Um, and it's partly because they're the one who can help us understand that ISO shin interface and get it to, to the, the depth there. So you need that kind of dimension to really be able to answer the science questions that NASA asked us to answer. Um, but anyway, so so we knew which which instruments were the single point failure ones where there was a lot of concern about how to add robustness and make sure that we didn't end up in a place where that we had to you know worry about that. But um, anyway, I'd given a talk on the uh, peace staff with Sarah. We were like talking about you know how single point failures can be used. I got an email like an hour later. Sarah and I were like, hey. Did you know you can you can use the single point failure like assessment to actually inform like quantitatively your risk matrix now instead of a you know consequence five is you can actually say it hits one of these single point failure instruments mm. and like oh yeah you know we already talked to some of the risk people and we already talked about how to quantify that it, it was just like cool that like you know once one idea spurs something you know other people are like oh i can apply that to my my aspect of things and so, you know, just kind of building on each other. As soon as you see it, people's ideas kind of kept sparking. I'm like, oh, if I had this, then I can actually do this in a less intuitive and more like quantitative way. And it's, it is really helpful as long as it's being used, you know, within the bounds of what the limitations of that model are. It's a really cool, like, way to see things flourish. No, oh, that's so cool. 
um, especially because I, I don't know, I, f I feel like with a lot of systems engineering tasks, like especially when you kind of get into the weeds and things are established, then it's it's more of like the systems management of kind of keeping things going and you sort of like, I don't know, like you can kind of lose that like exciting, like, oh yeah, you know, we can use this to apply to, um, you know, as, as a tool to sort of apply to risks and it, I don't know. Um, so I, I, I love that you guys got to sort of experience that as well. And like, it, it seems like there was just a lot of like sort of new, new processes that came out of, of doing this for Clipper that were just really cool and, and innovative and will help people in, you know, a variety of different ways. Yeah, that's the hope for sure. It was it was just a very cool experience. So yeah, this team was great. And like, you know, it's one of the highlights of my career for sure, is being able to work with these folks and, and make something like this. And like, you know, it, it extends this way in. If you kind of realize that that's what systems engineering can be, then you kind of try to bring that philosophy to the next task you have. You know, at some point I became the, the VAB lead for the payload on Clipper and was saying, okay, you know, I saw how useful it was for people to have kind of a touchstone framework for understanding uh, the science traceability part of it. So I was like, how can I think of something that will help people understand what we're trying to do for, you know, the VNV side of it and showing instruments. And so I think, you know, that has changed how I do systems engineering. I see that the value in having that kind of central framework because it just allows people to, to grow their own really cool system alongside yours and, and we can kind of group from each other. Awesome. I, I think that's a, a beautiful note to, and the podcast on actually okay sure yeah thank you so much laura this this was so fun um <laughs> yeah. i i learned a lot for sure um that that will definitely be useful to me and i'm i'm really excited to share this with other people so thank you so much again for doing this yeah no i appreciate you reaching out uh, let me know if in editing of questions or something or something got cut off when the internet died um but uh, <laughs> <We'll do. laughs> but yeah so just uh let me know and um like i said uh, i think the biggest thing i want to make sure that comes across as you're kind of putting things together is i i don't want to be I, I feel like sometimes it's easy gpl sometimes uh, has a reputation for not always acknowledging what other people are doing so i really am sensitive to the fact that like this is a big team effort and that like, while I can be talking about my, my personal experiences on it, like I don't want anyone to come away thinking, oh, Laura's like the Clipper person, right? So mm. I think mostly just making sure people understand that like, this is an incredible set of people an incredible set of instruments. There's teams way beyond JPL and um, that have all contributed to this like massive and really incredible mission. So, uh, and I want to acknowledge all the work that they're doing to, to make this a reality and all of the help they gave to make what I did that much more fun. <laughs> so, so if there's one takeaway as you're like kind of putting it together, that's the, I guess my one goal is to make sure that they, they feel acknowledged and don't feel like left out. <laughs> Yeah, no, and I, I can definitely sort of like make sure that snippet is in included in there too. But I, I, I think from what I I interpreted from the things that you said, I think that came across uh, awesome. certainly very well. Um, it, the Just the, the scale of the team and like how many awesome people worked on it. So um, no, no need to worry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, I appreciate it so much. Uh, thanks, Sarah. This was great. Uh, yeah, just let me know if you have other questions. And honestly, just chatting, it's always cool to like meet other women who work in the field mm -hmm. in such different institutions. Like I said, I learned so much when I talked to all the instrument teams and 
Uh, so just honestly, just hearing what other people are doing is kind of cool. So uh, it's cool to have a contact over there in the uh, the chilly Northeast. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so if you ever have any other topics or questions uh, outside of this, please just let me know. I'm happy to to connect to people. It's like one of the cool things about being a systems engineer. Yeah, no, I fully agree. It's it's what's kept me with systems engineering, actually. <laughs> For sure. And that's a wrap on this week's episode of The Art of Space Engineering. Thank you all so much again for listening to the show and for connecting with me as well. You guys are certainly a large part of what motivates me to keep up with this and find new ways to give back to the aerospace community. I want to extend another huge thank you to Laura for being a guest on the show. It's really no understatement that large missions like the Europa Clipper take decades to plan and execute, and a lot of inspiring work goes into making this possible. I've always been very curious on how these things come together, so being able to read these papers and just see a window into what that's like and what lessons are important to take away from it was just really awesome. So I was absolutely thrilled that we got to have this conversation and that these papers just exist in the first place. It's just absolutely awesome. Um, if you're interested in reading the papers on PStaff and MStaff or other papers related to the Europa Clipper, how it was implemented, links to all of those will be in the show notes. And if you want to follow along with the Europa Clipper mission, I highly suggest subscribing to all of the NASA newsletters. Um, you can also visit the Europa Clipper website for specific information on the instruments, the team, and the mission itself. Also, if you are catching this episode before December 31st of 2023, you can visit the Europa Clipper website to send your name virtually to Europa. I, I don't know exactly how all of those names are integrated into the spacecraft's memory, but I think this is just a super cute and really fun way that NASA engages with the broader community, and I love that they do this. So I wanted to share that I saw that. Um, as for other logistics with this podcast, I don't actually know how often I'll be able to put these new episodes out, but... I definitely have a lot of ideas brewing on current technologies or other practices within space systems engineering that I've learned over the last couple of years and just really want to share on here. So I'm going to do my best to make it happen. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, please feel free to connect with me via email or LinkedIn, and you can find resources on both of those in the podcast description. And finally, if you've been enjoying this podcast and you want to support it, please share these episodes with your friends who might be interested in them. And don't forget to follow this on your favorite podcast platform or on Facebook to get notifications on upcoming episodes. And with that, here's looking forward to future adventures and the lessons learned from them. Cheers, Sarah.